All right, can you guys hear me? Awesome. Well, you guys bust open your Bibles to Nehemiah 1. I'm not going to just jump right past that, but I'm getting you going so you guys can be ahead of me. We're going to be in Nehemiah 1. But man, Heidi, uh, again, I don't feel like I should say anything after that because you just did my entire message in one fell swoop. Isn't that, not, isn't that awesome? You just want me to just pray and we just go home? Yeah. Well, that's not going to happen. All right, so settle in. Well, uh, guys, I mean... All these stories that have been constantly been shared up here, we've been sharing you these stories week after week after week after week. And the reason why we're doing this is to show you guys that it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. And people who are sober-minded, every person who is a sober-minded person is saying, Man, I just don't want to stay where I'm at. And I really appreciate the courage of all of our friends who've come up on this stage uh, because we forced some of them, and just share the story of what God has been doing in their life. And the truth is, all praise be to God. Thankful for Heidi being honest. Thankful for God changing her life. It's changed my life. It's changing your life. It's changed Jim's life. And um, I'm just so incredibly thankful. I do want to give you guys one thing I forgot to say. I think it's really relevant and important. Uh, well, really, two things about it is one, I was going to say this about Jim, Proverbs 20, verse 6, Jim and Jenny, says, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? And I'm thankful for the faithful man that Jim is, but I'm also thankful for the faithful men and women across the Bighorn Basin who are calling on Jesus and saying, look, I'm not perfect, but I want to follow the perfect one. And hey, I just trust that if I stomp on this ice, he's going to hold me up. And so I'm just thankful to Jim, Heidi, Nick the entire region team, all you members who are trying to follow Jesus, man, thankful for every one of you, excited. I want to also let you guys know that uh, for the current season, um, Jake Williams is just going to be stepping in as an interim elder. We only have three guys. Just going to give you guys that to let you know he's stepping in. We love him. Uh, we, along with him, don't think that that's the best next step for him is to be in that role right now with him serving on staff the way he is. But he's going to be stepping in while we go through a process of uh, vetting and running with some men, okay? Just give you an update. Now, let me pray, and we're going to go into the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to set some context. We're going to talk about a lot of fun things. I'm excited. This is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and there's a reason why we're coming back to this. We did this at the very beginning in a hallway. Anybody here in the hallway when I taught Nehemiah a long time ago? Okay, a few of you guys. Good. It's going to be better, hopefully, by God's grace. Uh, but there's a really important reason why we're going to do it. But before we do that, let's do what we do sometimes frequently in here. Let's just pray that God would open all of our hearts, mine most of all, to what the Word has to say. Okay? Because I can't change you because I'm not God. But God can, and we've got to just say, God, I welcome you in. All right? So, Lord, we do. Right now, welcome you in. We just pray right now. As our kids sing and they play downstairs and you're doing your work in them, I pray you do a work in us. Open up our hearts. I pray you transform me like you transform Heidi, Nick. And I pray that every person in this room, this word would sit in us. We'd be convicted by it. We'd be strengthened by it. We'd be encouraged by it. God, would you do that in your name? Amen. All right. 21 years ago, I was in fifth grade and uh, I was in Wichita Falls, Texas. Anybody from Texas in here? Okay, a few. Yeah, don't be too proud, all right? Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Usually, if, you, if there was one of you in here, they would have jumped. That's a typical Texan. They love everything. That's why they think Whataburger is good. It's not. But because it's from Texas, jeez, man. I'm just trying to call out sin and lies, all right? I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, I was in Wichita Falls, Texas. I was in the fifth grade at Austin Elementary School. Uh, my dad, my stepdad was in the Air Force at the Shepherd Air Force Base. And 21 uh, years ago today, you guys know what today is, I was sitting in a library. And a lot of you, you can remember exactly where you were this morning, 21 years ago. Am I right? This is September 11th. And uh, yeah, some of you weren't in the fifth grade. I apologize. But I remember where I was, sitting in the library, and I remember looking up, we have a TV screen, and the news was playing. And that day, for me, with my family being in the military, our lives changed forever. Uh, because on that screen, we saw walls coming down, gates being burned, 
uh, because men with a certain type of ideology felt like that was the right thing to do. And we lost thousands and thousands of friends. And if you remember at that time, at least in the circle that I was a part of, the families I was a part of, uh, all that was being talked about in the circles I was in was it's time to go to war and uh, wanted to fight. And for me, going on to the military base was always so fun for me because on Air Force bases, they always did these like little hand signals to get you in. And every guy got to make his own hand signal. And if it was, you know, if it was an officer, they would salute. My dad, they would just do all these weird things. And I love seeing all these guys welcome us into the gate. But from that day forward, that never happened again. They checked IDs of every single person to get onto the bases. And they still do that today. And it changed everything. Changed the way we fly. Am I right? Changed the way we entered bases. It changed the way we do. uh, It changed our history. And many of you guys have had friends and family who have passed away going and fighting a war over ideology in the Middle East because of what happened then. I'm telling you that story not just because it's September 11th, but today we're talking about the book of Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah knows what it's like to hear that the walls are down and the gates are burned. And I'm excited to be in this book because you guys need to know that just what happened 21 years ago wasn't just about what physically happened. It's a war that's still going on today. And it's not a war of flesh and blood. It's a spiritual war of people who do not believe that Yahweh is God and of people who do believe that Yahweh is God. And we gather in this room right now as people who believe that God is the one true God and that he's called us to love one another to lay down our lives for one another, to not take life, but to fight for it. And as we go into this book, we're gonna, the reason why this is important, guys, is because you're still in it. It's not over. And it's not, it's not a war over red, white, and blue. It's a war for the kingdom of God. And if you're a call in the name of Christ, and he's your savior, you're a warrior for him. And you can have an impact on what, what God wants to do in this world. You can have an impact. And so I think this book is one of the most relevant books that we could be in right now. Because we've got several temptations that we could have right now coming into this building, and this is the reason why I felt passionate we should go back into this. We have a temptation to believe that God cares more about these walls and the buildings in this world than he does to the people that are in them. And I'm here to tell you that's a complete lie. We're going to talk about a restoration of the walls, but we're also going to talk about a restoration of people. What God actually cares about is not how clean these windows are, how well painted the building is, whether or not the hotel sprinkles are grass and floods our parking lot. That's not what God cares about. What God cares about is you. And that's the reason we are here. That's the reason why I'm a part of a team that decided to go to war for you and for your neighbors. And this is an outpost, but we're the missionaries who man it. And we're here to go to war. We're not here to hide. We're here to do something about it with our God. Amen? Some of you want to go to war with me. And some of you are not so sure. And if you're in here and you're a follower of Christ, hey, you are the mission. You're a missionary. If you don't know Jesus, you're who we're after. And we're here because we love you. So we're going to dive right in. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to set the context for the book of Nehemiah, which is the entire Old Testament. So I'm going to try to do that in like 60 seconds. Uh, then we're going to address the problem that Nehemiah faces. We're going to take a look at the solution that Nehemiah starts with. And then finally, we're going to look at the petition that Nehemiah prays that every one of you, if this is your problem, you should pray. All right? Let's start with the context. Go to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. All right? And we're going to get started there. Verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened the month of Chislev in the 20th year I was, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Pause. He's starting off his letter, and he's giving us a lot of context. Let me tell you a little bit about this, okay? Nehemiah, his name means Yahweh comforts. And so Nehemiah, and there's a book right before it, okay? If you turn to the left, you see there's a book called Ezra. 
Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one letter, one book that went together, okay? And we separated them. It's the memoirs of Ezra, the memoirs of Nehemiah, okay? Nehemiah, this is the end of a very long history of Israel, okay? Towards the end. It's about 440 BC before Christ, which means that 40 years later, we're going to enter into 400 years of silence where we're not going to hear a lot from the Lord. This is the last kind of big work. And so here's kind of the context, all right? There's this guy named Nehemiah. He's living in uh, basically Babylon, and he's there because the Jews 70, well, actually 82 years prior were taken into captivity, all right? They were defeated, they were captured, and many of them were taken over east into a place called Babylon, okay? And after 70 years, though, God released his people, and some of them were able to go back to the west into the area of Judah and back to Jerusalem. It's been 12 years after a big wave with a guy named Ezra went back. And, but Nehemiah still lives in Babylon. He serves in a certain role. We're going to see here in a little bit. And so it says in here that it's the month of Chislev, which is November, December. It's the winter, which makes a lot of sense because it says that they're in Susa. Susa is down, uh, if, if you're looking at the Middle, Middle East, if you see Iraq, it's down closer to the southwest. Uh, near like a, a kind of center of Iran, but it's southern. And this is where the king would go in the winter, right? Any snowbirds in here, right? You come here in the summer, right? In the winter, where do you go? Arizona. This is the king's Arizona, all right? And he's down there, and they're at the citadel. And it's, it's, what we're about to read is some of his brothers are going to come there. Now, what you need to see is this is 12 years after Ezra has left and gone back to Jerusalem, and the expectation is that there's been a work going back on in Jerusalem, okay? And so this is what's going to happen. He's got a question. He's still living in Babylon. He's got a question. Let me read this to you. Verse 2 and 3. Let me reread one. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, November, December, in the 20th year, which is the 20th year of King Artaxerxes I, as I, Nehemiah, was in Susa, the citadel, the winter capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers probably a literal brother, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Hey, what's going on in Jerusalem? Tell me about it. So here's what I want you guys to think about. Think about this. Think about Nehemiah's perspective and the hope that he has when he asks this question. How are things going in Jerusalem? At this point in Nehemiah's life, he has never seen Jerusalem. Like most of you. Never seen it. He can't get on Google. He can't go look up Google images. He can't get on YouTube, watch the, you know, the tour guide videos. He has never seen it. Everything that Nehemiah knows about the capital of the Jews, the city of the kings, the place where God dwells, everything that Nehemiah knows, he knows, just like you, secondhand. He's never been there. Nehemiah's entire life, he has been a foreigner to a place uh, that he belongs. And he's been living in a place that's a constant reminder that he is not home. And in that way, guys, Christians, he's just like you. You're a foreigner, and where you live is not your home. This is not home for us. As Christians, we are sojourners. The word sojourn means temporary stay. We're in this temporary stay, living in these flesh bags of ours on this earth, but this is not our home. There's another home, and the home is with God. And God made a promise to the Jews that God was going to give them a land that he prepared for them, just as he promised to Abraham. Flip over to Genesis chapter 17. If you have a Bible or you have a phone, if you have a Bible, switch all the way. It's the front of your book. Go to Genesis 17. If you've got a pen, I want you to underline this. This is one of the most important verses in your Bible in the Old Testament. We're about to, I'm about to show you a passage that for Nehemiah is, is a deep hope that he and his brothers have. Genesis 17 at verse 7. This is what it says. And I will establish my covenant, my promise between me, this is God talking, and you, Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout their generations from, uh, for an everlasting 
covenant forever. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land. Number one, the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So he says, I'm going to give you a people, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to bless you. This promise right here, guys, listen to me. This promise is what faithful Jews clung to. They held on to this. Like this had meaning to them, especially to guys like Nehemiah who grew up in a land and a place. It was a constant reminder that they were not home. So keep in mind when Nehemiah asked his brothers, hey, how's it going in Jerusalem? You've been there for 12 years. He's asking with like an expectation, with an excitement. Like, man, what have you guys been up to? Tell me about it. He's hope-filled because of what that passage says. We are back in the land that God promised to us. Tell me what's going on. And here comes the problem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Those aren't two exciting things. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. All right, why is this such a big deal? Why is this a big problem? Well, there's several reasons, and I want to give you some biblical history so you understand this. Uh, obviously, one big obvious explanation why the walls being down is not so good is just because of outside attack. It makes you vulnerable when there's no walls, right? Because you guys can imagine if this was open air, right? You guys would all be a little chilly. Am I right? If it was snowing outside, you're thankful for the walls. If you live in a city where you could be attacked, you would like there to be walls. Anybody? That's obvious. But the main reason is because of the covenants. God made a promise to Abraham. He's going to give him land, seed, and blessing. But he also made a promise to David. And it's called the Davidic covenant. It's in 2 Samuel 7. Okay? If you're fast enough, sword drill, go to 2 Samuel 7. If not, stay where you're at. You're good to go. Three of you. Way to go. Love it. You can hear three Bibles turning. 2 Samuel 7, 16. God makes a promise. He says this. Talking to David. Talking to David for the people. He says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. To Abraham, he promised a land, seed, and blessing. To David, he promised a house, kingdom, and a throne. And both of these were going to be everlasting. These guys, listen to me, these are covenants that faithful Jews believed and trusted that God could bring about. But here's the problem. How, is it a kingdom if there's no king and no walls around the city? Is it a kingdom? No. Do they actually possess the land if there's no city and no fortress defending the land? No. So when Nehemiah hears that the walls are down, guys, it's a lot bigger than just, ah, we got some work to do. Ah, we got some painting to do on the walls. When I would drive past this building, it's not my, when I drive past this building and see this place just kind of getting grown over and nobody in it, nobody meeting, to me, I was like, I hate seeing it because it was a symbol to what has died off in us, not in a building. Do you hear me? And so what Nehemiah is upset about, what you have to understand is he is seeing that God's promises are not being fulfilled. There's no life in it, no life there. It's not just that his brothers have been unfaithful due to lack of courage, lack of diligence, lack of manhood. He's upset about that and that's the shame. What he's just bummed about what he's wrecked by, so much so that he's like on the ground, he's fasting, he's weeping, he just collapsed on the spot for days, is that the promise of God is still not being fulfilled for the people. And it wrecks him. Why does it matter? You guys got to understand, God delights to dwell with his people. And the city is the place where he was supposed to dwell. The temple is the place where he's supposed to dwell. And if, no, if neither are being rebuilt, the symbol of God's presence with his people is not there. You guys got to know God delights to dwell with his people, not just in the Old Testament. Do you guys know that God delights to dwell with his people in the New Testament? 
Hey, flip over again. Let's go. You're going to go there. I'm going to show you the most encouraging, hope-filled passage in your Bible. Go to John 14. Go there. This is what I want you guys to memorize this next week. You can do it. Memorize this. This will be the hope of your life, Christians. John 14, verse 1. It's in your New Testament, fourth, fourth book in. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right before Acts. John 14. Let me prove to you that God delights to dwell with his people, not just in Jerusalem. He says this in John 14. Hear, hear these words, guys. Like, really feel them. Jesus, Jesus, the God, says to you, let not your hearts be troubled. Why, Jesus? Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you hear this? And you know the way to where I'm going. What's the way to get there? It's faith. It's belief that God can do John 14, that he is doing John 14. Back in 2019, I got to take 35 people, all right, most of them high school kids on airplanes, down to a place uh, in Orlando, Florida. We were the Orlando World uh, Center and at something called Life Conference. Did anybody go with me in this room? hey All right, these guys. All right, some of you in the back. Awesome. We were in this place called Life Conference. It's a big conference with 5,000 people. Most of them high school students get together, and we're in this massive conference center, okay? It's amazing. But the conference center is also a hotel with thousands of rooms. So we've got 5,000 people, and there's one massive room that we're in there, and we're worshiping God. We're learning about God. There's all these smaller rooms where we would eat together. We'd hear more messages about God and how to follow him. We would do all fun stuff together. And then, believe it or not, there were these rooms that were prepared for us, right? It was really scratchy blankets, but either way, prepared for us. And we got to be in those rooms, and we got to fellowship and be together a whole week. And so one day, Carson and Arnica, you remember this? I got all the kids in one room, and I said, guys, and I took them to John 14. I said, I want to read something to you. It's going to blow your ever-loving mind. What you've been experiencing all week here is just a small taste of what heaven's going to be like. I was like, guys, has this been good? Like, yeah, it's been good. I said, like, do you know there's a room made for you? And we're going to be in heaven in the kingdom of God. And there's going to be places where we get to worship God. We're going to eat together. It's going to be joy. And you don't have to go back to school. And it's going to be like this. And guys, it makes me emotional just thinking about it. Doesn't it? And it was, wasn't it Carson, Annika, Eric? It was just unbelievable how cool it was to walk through and just see people and connect and be together. It was amazing. And guys, that was with high school students. How good is heaven going to be? And so just imagine, guys, imagine if... What we thought we were going to be heading to, we get there, and the Orlando World Center is just burned down, and it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We'd be devastated. If you were to find out that Jesus wasn't faithful, and he lied to us in John 14, and actually, heaven, there's no room being prepared for you. There's not going to be places to worship. There is going to be, it's not going to be any feasts. It's not going to happen. Would it devastate you? If you hold on to the promises of God like Nehemiah, then you're going to be broken like Nehemiah. And so what happens next, Nehemiah 1, 4, he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. Nehemiah was wrecked by the news because his hopes were shattered. His disappointment and those who went ahead filled him with shame because Nehemiah is not a lukewarm, lukewarm Jew. That man loves God. That man believes in God. Are you a lukewarm Christian? Do you believe that God's going to provide this hope for you, that he's preparing a place for you, it's going to be filled with rewards for you, all according to his grace, because he just wants to be with you? Do you know that? If you know that, then you're going to understand why all this matters. You're going to get it, why all this matters, why Nehemiah is on the ground as a grown man, weeping and not eating, because he's broken. So why does this matter? Well, first, like I've already pointed out, 
The kingdom that Nehemiah is hoping in and the, and the kingdom that you and I are hoping for are similar. Here's the thing. The presence of God dwelt inside of this physical kingdom in, in a physical way. So Nehemiah hoped in that. But we Christians, we don't hope for a physical kingdom, right? We hope for a resurrection. Do you understand? If you go over to uh, John chapter 2, you don't have to go there. I'm going to read this to you. Jesus shows that he's going to do something, uh, a kingdom of God type thing that's just so much different than what Nehemiah was hoping in. And uh, Jesus shocked the whole nation. He says, destroy this temple. He just, this, he's about to wreck everyone. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And, and will, uh, he says, and will you raise it up in three days? What do they got their mind on? The building. What has Jesus got his mind on? Himself. Who was supposed to dwell in the temple? Starts with G, runs with odd. God. Okay, good job. All right, awesome. Try to help you as much as I could, guys. All right, God was supposed to dwell. They don't realize they're talking to God. He's right in front of them. Listen to what Jesus says. But he was speaking about the temple of his body because the Spirit of God dwelt in a man named Jesus. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, which leads to the second thing. Our hope and Nehemiah's hope is for a restored presence of God. The difference is we're not hoping for God to do something in uh, Grace Baptist building. We're hoping for God to do something like he is doing in the Warblows, right? In us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, you're the building. You. You are it. So when people drive by and your friends go, hey, what's going on over there? I saw that sign out there. You guys are cleaning it up. It looks nice. What do you say? What do you say? You go, hey, if you think that's nice, you see what God's doing in his people. That's what you really need to see. Amen? That's what we're here to do. If this thing burns down, we'll go back to the rec center and we'll keep it up. Because it ain't about the building. You're the building. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So this leads, this leads to the problem that I've got and I think many of you are concerned about. If we are God's temple and the spirit of God dwells in us, the spirit of the living God who's building a kingdom, then here's the question. If God is in us and we are his people, why aren't we seeing manifestations of his kingdom all around us? That's Nehemiah's problem. He goes, if we're the people of God and we're back in Jerusalem, why am I not seeing these walls being rebuilt? Hey, why am I not hearing about the temple? Why are we not getting back into order? Do you know our neighbors? And a lot of you, you come from a lot of church hurt, saying the same, you're asking the same thing that Nehemiah is asking. Some of you are really, truly hurt and broken because you're going, hey, I thought you guys were God's people. What's going on here? I'm not seeing the kingdom of God in you. Now, here's the thing. At this point in my message, I used to have a lot of bullets. I did have a lot of bullets of all the things the church was doing wrong. And then I realized as I looked at it, I was like, oh, geez. Uh, it's kind of critical. So here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. Let's just assume that. Cody's got about 10,000 people, 13,000, if you include the greater South Fork people in here. Um, let's assume that there's 1,000 Christians in Cody. 10% of the population are God's kingdom people, all right? thousand of them. Do you think that there are a thousand kingdom people in Cody right now, one out of every 10 people you met in Cody, and they were living for the kingdom, do you think Cody would look like what it looks like now, or it would look like something else? I don't know what your answer is, but I know what mine is, and I think it would look different. I really think it would look different if there's a thousand kingdom people here, okay? I think, and see if you agree with me, I think there'd be people who didn't look to a pastor as God. There'd be a people who didn't look to a building as God. They would look to God as God. Second, though they, always pra they don't always practice what they preach, which by the way, what do we call that? They're hypocrites. Has anybody in here ever met somebody who's not a hypocrite? Introduce them to me. I'd love to meet them, right? 
Everyone in the world is hypocrites, but even though they were still hypocritical, they didn't always practice what they preach. Wouldn't the kingdom people be a people who are confessive and repentant in their imperfections? Wouldn't they? Do you think that this people would cling to God's word and use it as their authority conscience of God? That they would let this thing be the thing that dictates how they operate? Do you think that if there was a thousand of them, those thousand would use this? Speak up. Yes, that's what they would do. They would use this. And lastly, do you think that these people would recognize their unique position in the community and seek God daily to help them, to seek God to use them to be influential where they are? Okay, so does Nehemiah. So what we're going to look at next is a prayer. And we're going to see this is Nehemiah's first solution. Nehemiah's first solution is to pray everything that you guys just agreed to. They would be a people who would praise God first. They would confess their sins and be honest about their imperfections. They would be a people who would look to God's word and trust in his promises. And they'd be a people who would recognize their position and petition God to use them where they are. Those four things. Let's check it out in here. All right. Here's the solution. It starts with praise. Look at verse five. After hearing all the problem, here's the solution. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who keep his commandments. So kind of sim- this, this prayer is going to be very similar to the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Even if you never follow Jesus, and if you played on a football team, you know this prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? And so what he says is, O Lord God of heaven. So it's just like a letter. When you guys write a letter, what do you start with? Dear so-and-so. Am I right? Dear John. Okay? In the same way he's saying, oh, Lord God. This is really important that you understand the names that he's using right here. Let me show you why. Let's geek out for a second, all right? Can you go there with me? I'm going to say the word Hebrew, all right? Don't, don't, don't get all dorky on me, all right? I don't know Hebrew. But the, what's amazing about the Hebrew here is he says, Lord God. He says, Yahweh Elohim. And this is so important that you understand this. It's not unusual in your Bible, but it is unusual in all world religion. Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is a self-title that God gives to himself. It is his name. And we translate it as Lord. Elohim is just a generic term for God or spirit. Okay? It's generic. Elohim, distant. Listen to me. Yahweh, Lord. So what he's saying is, you are, oh God, oh distant, great, awesome, powerful God, but also personal Lord who loves me and loves his people. Do you hear this? That's species unique in all of religion. No other religion can, can even touch it. He's the God who created the cosmos, but he's God who knows you by name. It's so good. So stinking good. Because knowing who you're talking to changes the way that you talk, changes what you ask. It changes who you are. You understand? I write my wife notes in a different way than I email somebody else's wife. Why? Because she's got a unique position in my life, right? And so we talk a certain way. Right? I talk to Jim in a different way than I talk to Addison. Not because I think I'm better than Addison or I think that Jim's just better than me that I show a certain type of respect there because he's a different person. Do you understand? That's why you email your boss a little bit different than your best friend, right? When you're complaining to your best friend about your boss. So, and this is why, guys, it's so significant. In the Old Testament, they understood he is the great God heaven, but he's also our Lord. In the New Testament, when Jesus teaches you to pray, what does he say? Does he say, Yahweh Elohim? No, he doesn't. What does he say? Call him what? Abba, which means what? Father. Our Father. It's amazing. Hallowed be your name, which is another way of saying feared and respected and loved be your name. 
How we address God has an influence on how we talk to him and what we say. And so the first thing that we're gonna, what's going to happen is when you recognize, guys, listen to me, this is why you read your Bible. Because some of you are getting your ideas of who God is from your friends or Reddit or Google or some YouTube video you watched. But when you read the Bible and you find out who he is, you see what he says. He is great and he is compassionate and he is loving and he invites us to call him Father even though he created a whole world. Crazy. But when you do that and you begin to really behold and see who God is, you know what's the first thing you're going to want to do? I'm so sorry. Like, who am I? And that's exactly what happens next is confession. Let your ear, look at verse six, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house, uh, father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Hey, two quick things I want you guys to see in this. Number one is look at the humility that uh, Nehemiah's got. What does he call himself in relation to God? He calls himself a servant. I'm just here to serve you. You owe me nothing. I owe you everything. You tried to warn us on how to live in a way that's going to bring life, but we chose to live in a way that brought so much social injustice and brokenness, and it was right for you to discipline us and move us into Babylon. God, we didn't listen to you. It's our fault. And he, look at what he does. You know what's one thing that's really easy to do? You know what's really easy to do? It's really easy to see the faults in others, isn't it? And sometimes I wonder, how is it so hard for them to see how crappy they are, right? Like, so can't you see it? I can see it, right? Sorry, Bonnie, I said crap again. I, dang it. Um, see, you could see it in me. I just keep saying crap on Sunday mornings. Uh, but you can see it. But you know what's really hard to do? What's really hard is to draw a circle around yourself and go, you know what? There's some things inside of here that I need to deal with first. It's easy to criticize some other churches and go, well, they're not doing it right. They're not doing membership right. They're not eldering right. He doesn't teach very well, right? They don't love people, yada, yada, yada. It's easy to do it. It's so easy to do. It's actually sometimes a little satisfying, like tasty little morsels, as the proverb says. But I've said this here at Outpost, and man, I have, I've had to confess sin in doing this. But at the same time, I want this to be a place where we recognize, hey, man, nobody's imperfect. Who am I to judge the servant of another? And I've, told, I've said this here at Outpost all the time. Like, look, uh, we're not a perfect church. Just give me about a little bit of time. I will let you down. And you will let me down. Outpost, as a people, we will let you down. It's easy to criticize others, but Nehemiah just goes, hey, me and my house, we have sinned against you, God. Man. One of the first things Nehemiah does when he's addressing the problems is to go, man, God, you are amazing. You're the God who's out there, and you're God who's right here. God, please forgive me. We have, I got, there's no reason why you should listen to me, but I'm coming to you because I know you're loving. And this leads us to the next amazing point you need to see. Okay? Before I, actually, before I say that point, let me tell you something that's even more amazing. There is so much power in confession, guys. Right? S Heidi? So much power in confession. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, you know, it says this. Um, it says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you, right? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you. He gives grace to the humble. And I've heard it said one time before uh, to me, it was great. If you try to do God's job, he's going to do yours. When you're trying to exalt yourself, like, God, you better listen to me, right? You better listen. I've been doing this thing right. Where are you at, God? No, that's not how he, what happens is God's going to come along. He says, let me humble you, brother. Let me show you who God is. But when you come like Nehemiah and you say, Lord, I just want to say, I, I got nothing. And I'm going I'm, I'm to fast. I'm laying on my face. I'm praying before you. I'm seeking your faith. It's amazing how God in our humility will exalt us. Why? Because we're usable for the master. Because we know who he is. And we know who we are, and we can partner together. Which leads to the next thing that's so important. Number one, we talked about praising and knowing who God is. And then second, talking about a confession. All right, this is all to address a problem somewhere else. And then the next thing that happens is 
If you really want to have, make a change, make a difference in the culture, you got to have a faith in Scripture. Look at Nehemiah, what he does. Verse 8. He looks at God. He says, God, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. This is humble the way he's saying this. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are of the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What Nehemiah is doing here is directly quoting Deuteronomy, which it's an ancient text for the Jews. He's quoting Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. He's basically saying, hey, you warned us, God, that if we do these things, you're going to take us away. But God, I, and I see that you did that. And you were right. But God, I also want to say, you said that you would restore us if we repented. If we returned to you, that you would restore us back. Does, did God actually forget that? No. He didn't forget that. But God loves when we will believe in his word and say, God, you said you would do this. I believe you can. I believe you will. We'll hold him to word. Guys, every one of you is blessed like Paul wasn't blessed, blessed like Abraham wasn't blessed. You've got the word of God in your lap. The question is, like Nehemiah, is this your solution? Is this your authority, conscience, and guide? It's sad sometimes that we, we think that, and I think, that the world's got a better idea of how to do things than a, a text that has just been true every culture, every dynasty, every century. It's been right. But when a people will go, hey, you know what, God? You said you would do this. I'm going to stand on that. You know what we call that? Starts with an F, rhymes with eighth. Faith. There we go. Got it. You guys are getting, front row's getting better. Maybe you can't hear me back there. Faith. It's having faith in God and what he says. And Nehemiah clings and holds on to what God says. Remember those covenants? He goes, I believe you, God. You'll do this. You are what I trust in. You are what I hope in. And that's why we say here at Outpost, it's our authority, conscience, and God. We trust in what God's word says. We have confidence in it. And having confidence in this makes us courageous. This morning we were downstairs. There was a group of guys who they're about to go out and they're going to be leading other groups of men through reading this Bible. And these are men who don't know the Bible, probably not even Christians. And they're going to be reading them through this, going to lead them through it. And he, uh, and they're down there. We're talking about this. And one of the last things I said was Joshua 1, 8, and 9. Everybody know Joshua 1, 9? Anybody got Joshua 1, 9 tattooed somewhere? All right. Maybe you don't want to admit it. Um, but what's Joshua 1, 9? Somebody shout it out. Come on, do Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Like, say it, right? That's, what it, that's at Joshua 1.9. Be strong, courageous. Have I not commanded you? But you cannot have strength and courage of Joshua 1.9 until you have the truth of Joshua 1.8. Does anybody have that tattooed on their leg somewhere? No. You don't even know what it says. You know what Joshua 1.8 says? It says, this book of the law should not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. Then you will be successful. And then what does it do? After you've taken this and you've internalized, you've meditated on it day and night, you know what happens next? Then be strong and courageous based on this. Y'all see? You're not strong and courageous because your ministry is successful. You're not strong and courageous because of your position in life. You're not strong and courageous because you're wealthy. You're not strong and courageous because you could talk faster than everybody. You're strong and you're courageous, not because of any righteousness in yourself, but because this is right. And you're going, I'm going to live off of this. And even when I'm hypocritical and I don't get it right, I'm going to do what the, a, a right person does. I'm going to admit it and go, yeah, you see that? I, my wrongness was another admittance that this is still right. Right? Which leads to the final thing, which is a, a courageous petition. So based on that, God, you're going to do this. You are an amazing God who's out there. You're an amazing God who's here. God, I am imperfect. You should not use me. But because you say in your word that you're going to do these things, I'm trusting you, God, not my righteousness, yours. I believe you can do it. So based on all that, here's what I want to ask, God. You guys see, in the, you see what's going on here? 
Here's what I'm going to ask. Look what he says. Verse 11. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants. Still stay in love. To the prayer of your servants, us Jews, us Christians, who delight to fear your name. Let's pause on that. Some of you guys are freaking out. I'm taking a long time, but this is so good. To me, I don't know about you, to me, it's great. Delight to fear his name. Some people go, man, what are you talking about? God is scared of God? Yeah, well, kind of, right? Let me just give you a little bit of a comparison. I delight to fear grizzly bears. It's a delight to me to fear them. Because to not fear them would not be a delight when I'm faced with a grizzly bear. Am I right? Anybody? Anybody out? Anybody in this room? Let's find out who's the dumbest person in this room real quick. Any of you in this world, you see a grizzly bear in the trail like, oh, boo-boo, come here. You got any baskets? No, you're not walking up to a bear and petting it. Why? It'll slap your face off. But you know what would be crazy is if you walked into my kid's room and there's a little teddy bear, you saw that teddy bear and you wet your pants. That'd be crazy. Well, that's the difference between you being afraid of men and you being afraid of God. God's the grizzly bear. Men are teddy bears. They're nothing. Don't fear the one who can destroy your body and that's it. Fear the one who could destroy you and put you in hell. We delight to fear the God like when I was right, I got stuck up on a mountain because uh, I made a decision to ride a road bike. Bad decision. Tire exploded. Got to ride this down this, in this truck with these Mormon, Mormon couple, ex-Mormon couple. And I got to share my faith with them. And I just said, they're like, hey, so tell us about that. Why, you, you know, why do you believe in all that? And I said, look, hey, look. Look at everything around us, guys. And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. I said, yeah, who am I to argue with a God who can create all this? Am I seriously going to go brag about a wall I painted? He's created all this. I, I mean, that's terrifying to me. It's a delight for us to fear God because we go, man, he's, he's big, he's awesome, he's good. It's a delight, and it's not just a delight, guys. It's wisdom. All right. That wasn't in the notes. Let's keep going. And give success to your servant today. And listen to this. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What's he saying? He's saying this. Well, let's go down, read the next part. He says this. Now I was cupbearer to the king. He's giving you some insight. Nehemiah's got a unique position in the world. His unique position in the world is he's a cupbearer to the most powerful man in the world, which means he has constant access to the most powerful man in the world, the one who owns Judea. And so he prays a prayer, a prayer of courage. Give me favor in the sight of this man. Guys, he sees a problem. He goes to the God who is the solution. He confesses his sin before him. He calls on God's promises. And then he recognizes his unique position in the culture to do something about it. Friends, I want to ask you, do you recognize that there is a problem here in Cody? Do you recognize that our God is the solution to the problem? Not region, not outpost, not CMA, not house of prayer, not any of the church. God is the solution. And do you believe that God is so good and great? Do you recognize your position before him? And then are, do you guys recognize your unique position in the culture? Because people of God, Christians, they recognize that where their place is unique. Now, here's the thing. Typically, there's a group of pastors who like to talk and make everything about you. The reality is, and Jake and I were talking about this, you're one of seven billion people. You're not that big a deal, okay? You're one of seven billion people. But that's when I'm talking about you and Elohim. He's the God of the seven billion people. But he's also Yahweh. And even though you're one in seven billion, you're the only one right where you are. You hear me? And so there's a significance like you can't even imagine around your unique position. So whether you're an engineer, whether you work on pumps, whether you're a teacher or a coach or a friend or a high school football player, no matter where you are, listen to me. You are one of seven billion underneath a God who can see them all, but you're the only one who stands in those cleats, the only one who stands in those boots, the only one who sits at that desk and who has the spirit of God in them, bringing the kingdom of God to the environment you're in. 
So if you're like me and you recognize the problem, well, guess what? You got a God who's there who's your solution, and he is going to use you. You are his plan A. There is no plan B. The question is, are you ready to do something? Are you praying every day, God, give me favor in the side of my teammates. Give me favor in the side of my coaches. Give me favor in the side of my, of my coworkers. Give me favor in the side of my, uh, my spouse who doesn't know Jesus. Give me favor in the side of this man, woman, child. Now I was the engineer here. Now I was the wide receiver here. Now I was the teacher here. And when you do that, eventually, God's going to use you. Next week, Jake's going to take it. He's going to show us what God's going to do, and it's going to be amazing. But guys, uh, we're not going to sing that last worship song. Sorry. I know I'm going to make Is everybody upset about that? You're, you're willing to hang? All right, let's willing to hang. We'll come on up here and let's worship. All right? Look, hey, this ain't no, you know, you don't get a vote, but I'm scared of you a little bit, so... Hey, guys, I, I want you to hear this. As the team comes up, they're going to they're gonna lead us. We're going to sing to our God again. Friends, I'm begging you. And whether you do it or not, I'm gonna go, I'll go by myself if I have to. Because I know 2 Timothy 4.17 says this. Paul is at the end of his life. He is fighting because he sees a problem. He knows the spirit of God is in him, and he wants to fight for the kingdom. And everyone leaves Paul. But you know what he says in 2 Timothy 4.17? But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Hey, the Lord's with me. I know he's with you. But are you strengthened? You feeling encouraged? You ready to go to war? Let's do it together. Let's pray. Stand with me. Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father in heaven, I am so thankful we get to address you as Father. It just gives me goosebumps because my earthly father didn't want to be my dad. And I'm so thankful my whole life you wanted to be right there with me and you never left me and you never forsake me. Help me and my brothers and sisters in this room to have courage to be men and women who go out that you will use in a unique way. And God, if there's any sin in our life, I pray we will confess it. If there's any fear we have, you will strengthen us. If there's any help we need, we'll get it. And God, would you do things through us that would just be stories for the ages? I pray there will be people sitting in heaven one day with us, with their own room, eating with us and worshiping Jesus because we decided to get to work with you. How cool will it be? We love you, Lord. This song is for you in Jesus' name. Amen.